Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah July. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me, my co-host, Mr. Steve Evans. Welcome in, sir. Good evening, Noah. I'm uh, I'm having a good time with technology again. You know, you go through phases where, like, yeah, I do it for a job or whatever, and nothing's particularly interesting. But uh, I've been going through some phases where I'm really kind of pulling out the laptop after hours and just, oh, wow, it's time for bed type of days really well that's that's pleasant yeah. news because for for a couple weeks there you were kind of having a rough time like you'd pull out and technology was was kind of letting you down so what changed i don't know i guess once once in a while for me just tinkering around with something just to tinker around with it as you know doesn't really do much for me i have to have something that i can see a practical application for or you know it has to move the needle in some direction for me yeah. and uh I'm playing around with a couple of projects right now that I think are quite interesting, and I think we're, we'll we'll talk about that in a in a later show. I think when we're prepared to say a little bit more about that. Not that it's super secret, but you know, just I'm just starting to get my feet wet in some areas, and and uh, personal is bleeding over into professional. I've, <laughs> I've approached Red Hat about about um, perhaps pursuing some of this interest at work, and it looks like. Uh, good signs there so i'm just all around i'm just enjoying technology again how do you, how do you reflect on the fact that you can go to your boss so I, I, i'll set this up a little bit so i had a guy he's he's gotten into home assistant that works at ultra speed he's gotten into home assistant and so i i told him that like the day of he came in he's like yeah i shut up home assistant i put my first dimmer in and i said prepare to get nothing done and he looked at me like i had three eyes like what do you mean prepare to get nothing done? I'm like, it, you'll never have enough dashboards. They'll never be tweaked enough. It will, you know, and, and, and sure enough, here we are three weeks later and he's, he's still digging into it, but he'll come into the office and we have a conversation about that. Or he'll ask my opinion on something or we, we, we get into it or we'll talk about the effects as to how some of those things that he's using, particularly with, with the, like how node red and some of those things, how those have some really practical examples in, in the workforce. So how, how would you describe, or what would you say to somebody who says, yeah, it's my desire too to work at an open source company to where when you go and approach your boss and say, yeah, I'm kind of poking around at this thing at home. It's open source in nature. It has this thing. Here are some of the practical effects or some of the practical use cases or something that I think you might find of interest. And your boss doesn't go, Steve, I don't pay you for that. I pay you for X, Y, and Z. You're off here in Neverland. Go do that on your own time. They listen. They respond. They go, Steve, you might be onto something. So part of that is the ability to communicate. And I know that Sometimes on live radio, I don't come across as the most smooth talker. But when I am in my element, especially when I'm looking at someone, sometimes it's a little harder, as you know, Noah, to be a smooth talker when all you're doing is staring at a screen. But, <laughs> you know, when you're in person or at very least when you're on a video call, there's a, a dynamic and a back and forth that happens. And the ability to appropriately communicate what you're thinking and how you think it will 
impact your business or your career and why that's a positive thing for your employer, those are really difficult things for the vast majority of people in IT to accomplish. And you know me, you personally know me and how long I've been kind of banging on this drum about, you know, a lot of the, the time or value that you might actually have is lost on the employer because you haven't figured out how to put your finger on it personally mm. or how to actually communicate that to someone in a way that they will understand. Mm -hmm. Well said. You want to get into some email and do some communicating? Let's do it. First email comes in today from Chris. Chris writes in and says, hey, Noah and Steve, great show. I've been a listener for a couple of years and I'm running Linux with great success for about four years. Recently, on a Garuda Linux distribution, an update completely broke the system, which has been running flawlessly for about two years. None of the ButterFS snapshots could restore it to a working state. The sim system simply would not boot no matter what I tried. The Garuda form ran out of ideas after a while. Ultimately, everything had to be reinstalled. I'm a small business owner. My time is very limited for a lengthy troubleshooting, and I thought this could be a solution. But I'd like to get your take on this idea first. If the main SSD is cloned to the secondary SSD, could the secondary SSD be quickly restored to the main SSD if the system experiences catastrophic failure? In theory, this would allow the system to go back to a working state within minutes. Is disk encryption a concern if the process were to be implemented? Is there a reliable cloning software that you have experience with? Not dual booting Windows, so the cloning software cannot be Windows-based. I found Clonezilla, however, there's a known issue where Clonezilla doesn't see the WD Black NVMe drive, which is what I have. Is cloning a drive for the purpose overkill? As a whole second SSD has to be purchased just to hold the image of the main drive in the case things go south in a bad way. Should I have more faith in ButterFS snapshots? As those have a pretty high probability of doing their job, and what happened to me should be treated as a fluke. My main concern is to be back up and running as quickly as possible should the system experience an issue due to a lack of update or any other issues. I'm super thankful for the show that you guys and share your knowledge. Thanks, Chris. So, Steve, I have an idea what I would do if I were Chris. If you woke up in Chris's shoes, would you put a second SSD in your computer and make a Clonezilla image? No, I probably wouldn't. Uh, there's, there's just a ton to unpack here. So, first of all, I'd be very curious to know why did the snapshots not actually fix the problem? That almost sounds like some sort of weird hardware issue to me because unless the underlying problem had been there and just not exposed, the any any system snapshot, like whether it's LVM or it's ButterFS or it's ZFS, whatever it is, they should be catching that and rolling that back for you. Did it work at the time that you took the snapshot? Because by the nature of snapshots, if it worked at the time you took the snapshot, it would, should work when you roll back to the snapshot. Exactly. For if I was in this kind of critical situation, uh, I'm going to lean on my immutable operating system sort of trick. So if I end up having a laptop that must work, I probably would roll that way. For my job, it's not necessarily practical because I have to do a lot of dev work. I suppose I could do it in a VM. I guess I'll, I'll backtrack myself right, mm. right off the bat. I could do it in VM or in containers mm -hmm. and be just fine. As long as I'm in my home turf, though, honestly, because I cache all of the packages that get installed on the system, it takes me five minutes to reinstall a system and get back to where I, where I am because mm. I don't do heavy customization. Like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
the most amount of customizing I do is with some GNOME shell extensions, which is like, eh, whatever, you know, get them back and it's not that big of a deal. So my stuff gets stored on Nextcloud and gets backed up five ways from Sunday. And aside from that, I, I have Git and Nextcloud, and that's really all that I need in terms of maintaining a system. I've, I've blown away a laptop the day before I've taken an exam. Like it just doesn't really phase me much. So I'm going to pick up where Steve left off. I agree with him 100%. If you're looking for best case scenario, best case scenario is you can recreate your environment in just a couple of moments. And if that sounds daunting or struggling to you, what I would suggest is start to look at automation tools. So this is something that I would tell you both my wife and my middle schooler have wrapped their heads around Ansible to the point that they can redeploy their computers by just installing the base operating system and then running a playbook against it. And what that'll do is it'll restore all the critical data, reinstall all of the applications. The only thing that was really left, and it's not because this can't be automated, it's because yours truly isn't smart enough to automate this, and so thus I can't help them do it, and that is re-signing into all of the things. So you're going to have to sign into some accounts and stuff like that. But if you were able to do that, you should be able to get back to as Steve said, back to where you left off without much trouble. And if there's something standing in the way of that, I might suggest you look at that, at what that core issue is and solve that separately. Here's where I think Clonezilla is potentially an option for you. While I would be the first person to say 100% all day long, every day, if you can get to a point where your setup is replicatable, that's where you want to be. I hate special snowflakes. You don't want to maintain a special snowflake. As true as that is, and as much as I would stand behind that, and as much as that is absolutely what I've done with our workstations at UltraSpeed and what my own family is doing with their computers, I also understand where you're coming from when you say, I have everything set up, I got everything configured, I imported all the stuff exactly where I want to put all the icons in the right places, I set up all the things, I know where everything is, I set up all my shortcuts, all the things. Now I just want to sit down and use my computer. Gosh, do I, I can relate, right? You just want to move home and be at home. You don't want to have to move around. And so a couple things you can do. One is, I'm not necessarily recommending this, but I'm just telling you because I'm going through this process. I have started to work out of a VM for the kind of things where I have a workstation where I need 16 different VPN connections and a bunch of different software with configurations and sign-in and two-factor and all these things. It's just obnoxious to set up over and over again. It's not that I can't do it. It's just that it's obnoxious to do so. And so restoring a QCOW2 file is just easier. And I don't spend the vast majority of my day doing those things. So that's how I've chosen to make that process replicatable. So I pull the QCOW2 and I import it. When I need it, I spin it up, I use it. If that's not an option for you, and if you work inside of the computer all day, every day, that might not be. That's where I think Clonezilla comes in to be your friend because when you have something that is a special snowflake and you want to be able to replicate it quickly, Clonezilla can do just that. It can take an image of the entire machine and put it back exactly how you had it. So typically where we've used Clonezilla is things in like mass imaging. So you have a, a, a school and they have five computer labs and each computer lab has 40 machines. You do not want to be the guy to go through there with every single you know, machine and pull icons out and change the wallpaper and set that you don't want to do all of that. And so one way, of course, again, is, you know, to automate, to build the thing from scratch. But the other way you can do is you can set one up, take an image of it, and then roll that image out to all of the other machines. 
And the other thing that is nice about Clonezilla is it allows you to do that on machines that aren't open source friendly. So, for example, it's not so much a thing anymore, but there was a time when you get computers in and the first thing I would do is blow it away and install Linux on it. Well, if I ever want to sell that computer again, the next owner may very well want whatever crappy proprietary operating system came on it. And so what I would do is I would take a Clonezilla image of the computer exactly as it was from the factory, and then I would blow away and put my thing on and do all the things. When I went to separate with the computer, I just restored the Clonezilla image back onto that computer, or, and this has happened a handful of times, by that time the hard drive died or something switched, and so there's a new drive, but it's okay because the image just restores back on there, and then you get all the little fancy Dell things and welcome and little sport utility and all the other things that I would never take the time to, to reinstall. So you can meticulously maintain kind of your golden snowflake image. The other thing I would add, you talk about having to have two drives, one to store the image. Recall that with Clonezilla, you don't have to use up all of the space. So if you have, let's say, a 120 gig drive, but you're only using, let's say, 35 gigs of space, the Clonezilla image is going to be 35 gigs. Now, and this trips a lot of people up, you cannot cannot restore that image, even though it is only 30, let's say 35 gigs. You cannot, cannot restore that image to, let's say, a 64 gigabyte drive. It has to be 120 or greater. So know that going in, but you don't necessarily have to have an entirely separate drive that is, is equivalent to your first one. You could have a smaller one that just stores the image. So being able to roll back to a point in time is an excellent way to go and is not terribly unlike the way that Mac OS or Windows or Dell or any of these other OEMs pre-ship an image to you. They provide it to you with all of the installs and all of the configuration already done. So that would be my advice. Try to get there with automation. If you can't, then fall back to Clonezilla. Steve, do you image drives at all or everything for you is build it from scratch or burn it with fire? Yeah, I guess the only thing that I do is I might clone VMs, but that's because I'm just lazy and don't want to do another base install of five minutes when I can just pull the VM image out. But for actual hardware, no, nope. I haven't done an image in a very long time. Chat room is saying, so first Sleuth comes in and says, copying the programs and dot .cache files to copy the login, some programs might have a CLI that you could use. So there, there are ways to back up authentication. Again, I'd be the first to say it's not, I wouldn't go as far as to say like it can't be automated. I would just say I'm not smart enough to do it right now. Tiny says in the chat room, if you're using Clonezilla to provision machines, you don't have to reset the machine ID and SSH host keys. So that's true. You, you don't because it's going to back all those up. Although I would add, if that's the case, Consider the security implications there, right? Part of the reason that we've switched to hardware keys is because if you have a, a key file when it's sitting on the machine and somebody takes that key file, not only do they have access to your SSH stuff, you don't even know that they have it. So where the, the YubiKey is nice or any of the hardware authenticators are nice is you feed, the, the device itself never gives up the private key. It's a write-only device. It never allows you to read it. So you feed the, gar the device garbage data, it hashes garbage data with the private key, spits it back out, and that's how you perform the authentication. So, uh, you know, yes, you can do that. Yes, that will work. The, are there security implications? Yes, there are security implications. Our last email comes in from HJ. HJ writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. I have a question about the Ring front door camera. I don't have a monthly subscription but I want to save the feed to my NAS. Is it possible? I want to store locally and I don't like the cloud. Let me know and thank you and I love the show. 
I know, just to make this real short, I know of no way to get local access to ring cameras, nor have I seen anybody with any success in flashing alternative firmware to get access on it. Additionally, you should be aware that ring has agreements with law enforcement agencies all across the country in which they will give access, warrantless access to your camera if they so choose to or want to. Even if you're not the one being investigated for a crime, we covered a a story on the show a few months ago in which a guy told the police no. Uh, Well, first he said yes. First they said, hey, do you have any footage of this person across the street? And he went and said, sure, let me go look. And he goes, goes, okay, here you go. Gives him footage. And then they came back and said, yeah, we want these dates to these dates. And he went, you know what? I'm not, I'm done. I'm out. Well, they just went around him, went straight to Ring, asked for copies of all the recordings. And Ring not only gave them copies of the recordings for the front door that were going out, that was facing this, this other person who was supposedly suspected of a crime, not the individual who owned the ring camera, was not at all suspected of a crime, did nothing wrong, nobody questioned that, but it was his security footage that got subpoenaed to include all the cameras from his business and in the ones from the inside of his home to include his bedroom. And his only saving grace was he had the one in the bedroom unplugged at the time during the time period at which the police subpoenaed this data. So I would be, I would urge you in the strongest possible terms not to give a dime to ring. If you already have the camera, and you're trying to find a way out, I know of no other way than to replace it. Steve, I know you're you're not big on cameras at all, but have you seen anything in the way of being able to repurpose a ring camera? I've heard, now I, I have mm-hmm. no way to verify or care about this, but I've heard that if you have a monthly <laughs> subscription, there is ways to make it work locally, but only with the subscription. Um, and I didn't go any further than that because I don't care. Yeah, yeah, I'm in the same boat. Uh, so I'm going to give you a couple options to look into. So the first is the Access 8105. So these we've installed these at at uh, at, at, a, at a couple of daycares and some small businesses. They're great uh, video door stations. And actually, I'm looking. It's actually the I guess it's the i8116E is what has have re- replaced it. But basically the same thing. But it's it's a it's a million form uh, high quality doorbell with. Uh, with a camera and sit built in. And so the nice thing about that is when you push the button, you can either have it call an individual SIP extension. You can pick up the phone and press a button to unlock the door. You can do integration with your NVR. So if you're using surveillance station, it'll just pop up a little thing, say unlock the door. You can do stuff like that. You can talk to the recipient or go back and forth and say, yeah, leave the package on my porch, do this sort of thing. And they have outdoor mounting. They have weatherproofing. And uh, contains, obviously, a microphone and a camera. So really great, works excellent, completely platform agnostic, doesn't send a gat darn thing up to the Internet unless you specifically let it uh, allow it to. When you log in the first time, it'll ask you, can they send anonymous statistics? If you click no, it doesn't send anything. If you click yes, it sends anonymized statistics of how you're using the device. And uh, you essentially provide it PoE power and plug in the uh, contacts to, to operate the door closure or the um, the the uh, access control if you have it so really high-end device really good problem is they're like 800 bucks and it's not lost on me that that just isn't practical for most people in their house particularly when they're comparing it to a 75 dollar you know doorbell so if that's not in your budget and i suspect if you're in the ring budget it's not the next best option i have for you is a device from a company called armcrest now full disclosure i would i would go into this device fully expecting it to call home and send information on all the things. But 
it is an ONVIF capable device, meaning that you can just isolate it from the internet and it should, I emphasize the word should, I don't own one, it should allow you to still use the device locally. No monthly fee, give you the same general idea as a ring camera and allow you to use it without having uh, any of your information on the internet. So might check that out. Again, I'm not sure if it will completely help you or completely solve your problem, but uh, you can check those out. Our third email comes in from Steve. Steve writes in and says, hey, no one, Steve, longtime listener, haven't missed an episode yet. I really appreciate your show on my three-hour commutes to SoCal each year. Now that I work remotely, I have to listen while I'm doing chores around the house, and if I get too distracted, I listen while working. I appreciate the quality of content and production that your show puts out week after week. Fair warning, there's a shameless self-promotion ahead. I wanted to let you and all the listeners know the fourth annual Nugget or Nitro User Group Get Together event is happening next month. For two days, October 24th and 25th, it is a free virtual event. So if you can't make all of the sessions, they're recorded. You'll have access to them after the event. Yes, there are sessions specific to the Nitro product. But there's also sessions presented by industry leaders speaking out on general IT management, infrastructure, best practices, etc. Topics that are just using our tool. We finalized an amazing agenda with talented speakers, which already include leadership and technology experts from TNS, 22nd Century Technologies, Juniper Networks, Decision Point Systems, CK, and more. If you register for free by October 5th, you'll get some swag. And who doesn't like free swag? I'd like to give something to you and all your listeners for the Geeplag community by simply having them sign up early. I personally dedicate time to join as many sessions as I can, and I would love to see some familiar faces in the rooms with me. IDENG from the chat room. Keep up the great work. Link to register. Go.netrio.com slash nugget dash 2023. So thanks, Steve, for writing in. I appreciate it. We'll have the link for you in the show notes available at podcast.asknoahshow.com. 855-450. No, it's 855-450-6624. Penguin Prince, you're on Ask Noah. Good evening. Hey. How's it going? Good. Uh, Noah, I had a question. And I keep finding all the software for Windows and all that for VTubing, but I was wondering if you knew any that was open source I've been trying to get on Twitch and all that, but I really want to keep my privacy, so I'm going to VTubing route. Okay. So, and I, I thought I literally thought you would, or someone in the audience would know about where I can get the software so I can make a 3D model, or and or 2D model for my VTuber. So, Steve, I'm going to bring you into the conversation. I know you do a little bit of 3D modeling. I'm not sure you've done anything with uh, with VTubing. I have not. I'm actually just looking to see what VTuber is because, uh, oh, virtual YouTube. Okay. Um, no, I'm not. I'm not familiar with this at all, actually. Um, hmm. Interesting. So I'm not really sure. There's a uh, there's a thing on Steam. It says VTube VTuber Maker on Steam. I have no idea what what it's about, but it's free apparently. And uh, yeah, I don't. I have no idea. I didn't even know this. So was a thing. excuse our ignorance a little bit. Can you tell me tell me what VTubing and 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 where the 3D modeling comes in? 
virtual, it's basically a way where we can keep our 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 identities private and where all the viewers see a, like a funny 2D penguin or a 3D penguin interacting. I see. Uh, yeah, uh, there are some famous ones that are around, but if you look up Leo Sage on Twitch or uh, Mega Radar, or those two guys are personal friends of mine who have models, but they've been having they keep leading me to Windows only software, so. So here, here's what I'm going to recommend now, I, and I appreciate the call. Unfortunately, I don't have any any experience with this, so I'm I'm just going off of of I'm just going off of what's on the internet. But there is a project called V Pupper V P U P P R. We'll have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asnoahshow.com, and it is software made with GoDot, and evidently is has the ability to do some of this modeling. And so it's released as a flat hub, works on any Linux distro, and it's an open source VTuber application similar to VCFace for Windows, Mac OS, and uh, allows you to, to do some of these things. So again, you're, I mean, having no personal experience with this, I, I can't guarantee that it's going to solve your problem. But what I would say is give this a shot. Check it out at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Let me know if that works. And if it does, uh, let me know. And if not, give me a call back. 855-450-NOAH, 855-450-6624, the email live at asknoahshow.com. Inside of the Geek Lab, you can join at geeklab.ninja and tag Marlin, colon, linuxdelta.com, our chat bot, who will put the question right in front of our face. You can do that 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365, four days, 65 days a year. Two-bit writes in and says, I have a tablet that has an artificial leather back. It's been getting sticky. Tried to clean it off, but nothing has worked so far. Is there any way that you can think of to remove whatever the stuff is that's making the back come off my tablet? I feel like it's covered in syrup. So I feel like I've come across similar things like that. Typically, in my experience, it's been because it's not real leather. It's some sort of plastic glued together. And so what you're getting to is one layer of the plastic stuff is worn off. And what you're left with is the glue residue in between. So I don't know if you can just remove that thing altogether, scrape it off, take some goo gone and just get rid of all of the leather things. Steve, have you ever dealt with anything like that? So not specifically with artificial leather. However, uh, things like USB drives or different parts of cases or they can, like a, a game controller, those mm-hmm. sorts of things, they, they all have that um, rubberized plastic that they, they come with. If you end up having problems with that sort of stuff, I've 100% used... Uh, 70% or greater isopropyl alcohol to clean off with effectiveness. Like mm. you have to put a little bit of effort into it. But uh, the computer that I have right at my feet here was suffering the same thing. The The edges of it were were just ridiculously sticky all the time. And I, I basically scrubbed it down with, you have to put a little bit of effort into it, but I scrubbed it down with, with um, isopropyl alcohol. And it's basically restored the the machine to its previous state and so i would that would be my first guess as to what i would try again i haven't used artificial leather but i assume the process is something similar to create it 
So you can give that a shot, two bit, and let us know if that solves your problem. If not, right back in live at asknoahshow.com. From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of September 24th, 2023, here's the Linux and open source news. The GNOME team has released GNOME 45. This version includes improvements to the search and the file manager, and some new features like an activity indicator, new keyboard backlight widget, a new image viewer, a new camera app, and some theme updates. German Linux vendor Tuxedo has announced the Nano Pro Gen 12, a mini AMD-powered Linux computer. The Fedora Linux 39 beta has been released. Cairo has its first release in five years with version 1.18, and long-term support for the Linux kernel is to be cut as maintenance remains under strain. Currently, there are six LTS Linux kernels, 6.1, 5.15, 5.10, 5.4, 4.19, and 4.14. Under the process to date, 4.14 will lose support in January 2024, and another kernel will be added. Going forward, though, when the 4.14 kernel and the next two drop, they won't be replaced. At the Open Source Summit Europe event in Bilbao, Spain, the Linux Foundation announced that the OpenTofu project is coming under its wing. Previously codenamed OpenTF, OpenTofu aims to create an open, community-driven successor to the HashiCorp Terraform infrastructure-as-code technology under a neutral governance model. Red Hat and Oracle jointly announced Wednesday an expansion of their collaboration to bring Red Hat's OpenShift platform into Oracle's cloud infrastructure. And Red Hat collaborates with Intel to deliver open-source industrial automation to the manufacturing shop floor. CentOS starts an integration SIG to help products and services build on RHEL and CentOS. And the Harness Company has launched Gitness, an open-source, self-hosted GitHub competitor. In hardware news, NVIDIA is preparing their Linux InfiniBand driver for 800 gigabits per second for the Linux 6.7 kernel. In AI news, BlindChat is an open-source, privacy-first alternative to ChatGPT and was just launched by Mithril Security. BlindChat is an open-source AI initiative aimed to create the world's first conversational AI that operates entirely within a web browser without any third-party access. Mammoth is a series of open-source large language models specifically tailored for general math problem-solving. And lastly, the Free Software Foundation is celebrating its 40th anniversary of the GNU operating system. On September 27, 1983, a computer scientist named Richard Stallman announced the plan to develop a free Unix-like operating system called GNU and is the only operating system developed specifically for the sake of users' freedom, and has remained true to its founding ideals for 40 years. Since 1983, the GNU project has provided a full ethical replacement for proprietary operating systems. This is thanks to 40 years of tireless work from volunteer GNU developers around the world. So as I've gone through basically an accidental implementation, I started with Home Assistant kind of hanging off the end of my home, and over time, it's become more entrenched to the point now that I don't know how I'd go back to living without it. And so I'm reevaluating my entire home automation strategy from the standpoint that I want everything to be a home assistant device, first class citizen first. Could care less what else it works with. Could care less if it's only compatible with home assistant. That is that is the new source of truth. So if it works with home assistant, it's gold. If it doesn't or if it has mediocre integration or relies on some sort of third party service or something like that, it's completely out. And what I'm finding is that there are three classes of devices. The first class of device is what I would call science projecty. And it's where you buy something. They're typically very entry level budget wise. And so you can get into them for very low cost, but 
there is typically a more there's typically more involved with getting it onboarded and set up and sometimes depending on the device or depending on the wide community support there's mixed use sometimes it works really well sometimes it does not work the middle class is kind of what i'm aiming for which are higher end devices but specifically designed to work with home assistant and our local and and either do all their configuration from home assistant directly or directly on the device and then allow for seamless integration and uh, if the manufacturer went away tomorrow it wouldn't matter because they they kind of live all on their own then there's this third class of devices and the third class of devices is they're kind of sort of cloudy from the standpoint that you either require something from the manufacturer you require the internet or and it has the ability to work with home assistant. So it's not they didn't design the thing from the ground up for it to be home assistant. It isn't a it's a local device. It's like a oh, it'll work with all these things. It'll work with HomeKit and it'll work with Google Home and it'll work with home, you know, home assistant. And so they they kind of try to split the difference. Right now, what I'm looking for is motion detectors. So I am in the process of testing a new Z-Wave light switch. I've talked about it on the program before. It's called the Inability Red. We'll have a link for you in the show notes, podcast.asnoahshow.com. And I'm going to compare it to the Lutron Radio Raw 2 and see what I think the difference is and what I notice. I'm looking to pair that with a motion detector, and I'm having some difficulty finding one that hits all of the marks. So the marks are, first of all, it has to be excellent at detecting when somebody is in the room and not in the room. It sounds silly to have to say that when I say you're looking for a motion detector has to be able to do its job right. But it's really important because what ends up happening is a person exists inside of a room or more importantly is standing there and standing very still. And then the motion detector doesn't detect them or doesn't realize that they're there. And then the lights turn off. And while we as geeks can go, well, of course, because the, the PIR is not uh, reflecting off of the motion between here and you're not disrupting the light pattern or the, or the, the radar pattern enough. For, we all know that. Like we can all explain that at the same time. It doesn't do the guest that's standing in the house in a dark room any good. So I'm trying to split that difference to find what works and what doesn't and and what may. And so the device, the, the presence detector that came across my, my radar most recently is one from Aquara. And so in order to really understand this, you really have to understand the difference of the types of motion detectors. So there's two really that I want to talk about. One is PIR. So these are the most, I guess, classic form of motion detectors. If you ever had one of those little gadgets as a kid where you wave in front of it and it makes a sound or plays a light or does something like that. That would be an example of a PIR motion detector. So they detect heat and they do that by measuring the ambient temperature of the room using several detection beams. And when a difference in temperature is detected by one of the beams and the sensor activates and it switches on or off the lights. The second way is with microwaves. And so essentially you can almost think of this almost like a radar detector. So it sends a signal out, it hits an object, reflects back off, comes back and measures the time that it calculates that distance from a stationary object. And if it detects that object is in a particular zone, then it, you know, trips and it becomes in the closed state. So Aquara is they, they make a device called the FP2. And so the first thing I like about it is the entire thing is executed without ever sending anything to the cloud. So it's all local. It doesn't matter if you have an internet connection, works perfectly fine just in your home. By only using the radar sensor, you're able to monitor a room of up to 40 meters, and then you can divide it into various zones. So here's why that's really beneficial. Oftentimes when you're talking about motion or really presence detection, one of the things that you have to account for 
or that the motion detector doesn't allow you to account for is, so what if I'm sitting on a couch? If I'm sitting on a couch, you may not detect motion. The motion might be much smaller because maybe where the motion detector is mounted, I can only see the head of a person. But in that case, the head weight wise has to count for a lot more because if there's anything here in this area, that's real important. If there's nothing over in this area, that's fine because that's the back of the couch. We don't expect there to be. So being able to put these objects in and tell the, the, the presence detection, hey, here's how the room is laid out. Here's where I expect motion to be. Here's where you need to watch for it. Here's where I want you to ignore it. This is over by a window. The dog is a kennel is over here, whatever it is. These are the things I want to ignore. You're able to put in that map and call out the areas that you want it to detect presence in and the area that you don't. And then the other thing it does is multi, multi-person detection. So the FP2 radar sensor has the ability to detect and track up to five people at a time, making it really useful if you have multiple occupants. So this is something that we've, we've dealt with in our house is if there's automation that happens in one room and you have two people that are in a room and one person leaves the room, now we essentially are tracking two different things, right? We're tracking the, tracking the person that stayed in the room and we're tracking the automation for wherever this person is going. And so the FP2 allows you to do that. And finally, with the radar precision is, or radar sensors as opposed to the PIRs, uh, it's going to allow e- to detect even a tiny little movement while at the same time being able to say, hey, that's a 20-pound dog. So ignore the 20-pound dog, but respect the 200-pound human being, even if the 200-pound human being is sitting in a room and not moving. You're able to detect and say, oh, the beam goes further now than it did when we reset the room to zero. And they have a really neat little ghost mode that you can go in and, and, and it'll fire when it thinks it detects motion. And so then you can tell it like, no, that's a ghost. There's nothing in the room. And it will readjust and rebalance what it considers to be the room vacancy. So the company is Aquara. You can learn more at Aquara.com. Things I don't like about them. So number one, you have to use their app to set the the, the devices up and to create the room maps. Now, not really the end of the world because it allows you to do it on your local network and doesn't require internet and doesn't require an account or anything like that. But if the company goes away tomorrow, how do you set them back up? So that makes me a little uncomfortable. The second thing is, again, when I broke out those devices into those little classes, this is decidedly a device of the third class. This is not a company that is making a home assistant device first. They're making a really good presence detection that happens to work with home assistant as well as HomeKit as well as uh, Alexa, as well as Google Home, as well as if then then that, as well as Alice, so well as so, yeah, or the, I think they even have their home, their own Aquara Home automation thing too. So be aware of that. I'm not jumping in over the you know over the moon over it, but I look at it and it is one of the higher quality presence detections that I've seen. Steve, I know you looked at this a while back. I'm assuming you ruled it out just because of the mobile app thing that would require a phone, and Steve doesn't do phones. That is definitely part of it. The So there may be things that have changed, but I know for sure when I first looked at it, there were things like it needs initial access to the internet, um, even the app. So I don't know if that holds true anymore. I never bought one, but I read on the Home Assistant forums as well as watched some stuff on YouTube, and, and they were all saying that at least during the initial configuration, the app... The app so one of the one of the people I follow, what they did was they just VLANed off. They put their phone on the VLAN, they put this thing on the VLAN, and they could not configure it um, because the phone didn't have access to the internet. When they moved both of the things to a VLAN with internet, they could then configure the FP2, and then they moved it back to the IoT LAN. Um, and so there there was a bunch of stuff that I found off-putting 
largely because if I'm paying $80 or whatever the the obscene cost of this is relative to you know, I'm going to stop. You there. I'm going to stop you there at the obscene cost thing. So I, I, I get, I can, I can understand and accept the the concern about the app or if there's internet required and stuff. Again, my experience was not did not require internet. But what I would tell you is, I don't think eighty bucks is really all that much. You look at what Lutron does, especially with like their their homeworks. I mean, you're talking just the light panel to go in is like twenty seven hundred dollars to do like a five five light light panel. And then the and then the presence detection that comes in that. So when you start, I mean, I think if like, yes, if you're comparing to like the, hey, I build it myself or I flash my own firmware, I do all those. I think then eighty dollars is really expensive. But I think for what you're paying for, I think you've got to be able to compare apples to apples. And I think if you look at what the rest of the what the rest of the competition is inside of that that market, I don't know that $80 is that much money. Well, so I'll counter that by saying, okay, first I will grant you that this is a, a, a milli, um, it's a, an MV model, right? So mm-hmm. I, I understand that it's different than the PIR sensors and all the rest of that. But my counter to that is the Z-Wave light switches that, we, that I put places, they have PIR built in and because they are hardwired, they're, they're always going and mm-hmm. they have been... They really have been flawless. And so those cost me $40 for the switch and the motion sensor together. Yeah, the- but then it's all in one location though, right? Like so for mo- proper motion detection, like if you're looking at a room and you want to see out over the room, you want to have the ability to put the motion detector in the ceiling where it can see the entire room, not necessarily where the control point is of the light switch. Sure, but is that worth the extra fifty dollars per room? Maybe I don't know. I like I right? said. I I th- again. I think if you so again. I think it, if we're we start to compare apples to oranges, right? We're talking about a hybrid thing, a spork, a thing that does two things rather than one thing. So I think if you're looking for just motion detectors, then you kind of got to break that out and say, okay, so who does presence detection? Who does it best? And what does a competitive? What does a comparable system cost? Okay, well then, if you really want to go down that route, and again, understanding that it's def- different technology, right? But sure. the the Acara Zigbee, uh, no, I'm using Sonoff, not Acara. I'm using the Sonoff um, Zigbee PIR sensors that were somewhere in the vicinity of fifteen dollars. I have two of them mounted on the ceiling. They're battery, right? So that that's also different, mm-hmm. but they work pretty darn well, especially for the cost difference. Now. I, I have not experienced the FP2 and maybe the magicalness of it all would, <laughs> would be like I'm ripping out all of these things. But then I also have to figure out how am I going to run power on the ceiling? Right? Yeah. Whereas these yeah. guys are battery powered. So, for example, going down into my basement, there is no easy way for me to run power into that stairwell just because of where it is. Mm-hmm. Whereas I can just simply grab one of these things that's battery powered, stick it on the ceiling and the door, op- like when the door opens, then they sense movement, they trigger and the light comes on. Mm-hmm. Right? Until the battery so, dies. With, yeah, until the battery dies. But that's the case with any anything that's battery powered. So you could say that with your contact sensors or you know whatever. Yeah, the, so my contact sensors are hardwired, right? So it's literally just two conductor that runs to the down to the controller and when the two contacts are shorted so there there is no battery and they won't die if i had my pick of an ideal situation it would be something that was low volt so it ran off of 12 volts or 24 volts or something like that and i could run 12 volt or 24 volt to the device and then power it 
that would be like best case scenario. And then, and then some sort of communication protocol that talks back, Z-Wave, Zigbee, whatever, back to the Hub Z-Stick and then into Home Assistant. But battery is probably the second best. I'll tell you what I don't like is this little USB-C connection on the back because you think it's hard to run power. Imagine running power and trying to fit a, a Type-C, you know, wall wart somewhere. And, oh, by the way, you can't put those in ceilings. So now you can, what, have an outlet exposed? That's going to look like hard garbage. Well, that's kind of my point, right? So it, it, there are definite trade-offs. Anything mm-hmm. I have found, any the most reliable sensors are always hard-powered into power. That's like there's a wire into mm-hmm. power somewhere. But then that limits you to, well, where's the power in the room? And can I, like for my projector, I made an exception and I put a, an outlet in the ceiling. Mm-hmm. But how many places are you going to go around and punch holes in your ceiling to put an outlet there so that you can put an $80 uh, motion sensor in the room. We'll have links for you in the show notes of podcast.asknoahshow.com. If you're using something and it works with Home Assistant first, a first-class sentence, and you've had a great experience, we want to hear about it. Write in live at asknoahshow.com. Matrix 2.0, we talked about it a few months ago. It has finally landed. A lot of the things that they were talking about went from essentially what would have been, I suppose, vaporware at the time to actual features. So this has landed in Element X, and I highly encourage you, if you've not played with Element, to check it out. So the first is MSC 3575. This is sliding sync. So essentially, the short version here is we're only going to sync the data that we need to render the UI. So if you've used Element to the past, You've undoubtedly signed into your account and you sit there while you wait while while spinning pinwheel downloads all of your messages. Now, we would tell people, well, but that's just the nature of decentralized messages. And that's the nature of having everything encrypted and waiting until it gets to the device to do the decryption and all those things. And while all of that is great, it doesn't help the person who says, yeah, but I'll just use WhatsApp or Telegram or Signal or whatever else that doesn't have that problem. So sliding sync fixes that instant log on instant launch. They went from like 10 seconds for a launch down to 100 milliseconds. It's crazy. Element X available on Android and iOS. And then of course, instant sync. So when you open the device, it's going to sync the last 20 messages of each chat as well as they've put up a whole bunch of work so that it syncs your room list, which was of particular challenge because when you're trying to be end to end encryption friendly, things like searching for a room or mentions is a challenge, right? Because the server can't do that work because it can't know what the messages are. So the server will have to do the best that it can based on the information that it has. So it knows this data got here before that data. So that probably goes before that one, but largely the content is encrypted and the server doesn't know what to do with those messages. And so it's impossible for the server to do the ordering. It has to send that information down to the client and then the client does the final reordering. But they were able to get that process down so that it's super fast and on par with other messaging services. The other thing that they implemented was MSC 3401. And this is what I think might be of a particular interest to Steve. It's native element voice calling, uh, peer-to-peer group calling. So it's still in beta. You can demo it at call.element.io. And so there's, but, and there's still some work to get it to integrate to, to matrix so far as it looks like you would expect from a, multi-calling apps so you can hit the video icon and have people join and, and those sorts of things but works complete with end-to-end encryption now one of the things that i think was interesting was they started by partnering with jitsi and just had like a jitsi widget kind of hacked on and it worked for those of us that wanted a video call it was better than nothing and it got us there and it was all open source so we were fine with it 
So they went to redo it and they thought, well, maybe we should design it from scratch. And then they looked over and they saw what the folks at LiveKit were doing. Now, LiveKit, if you're not familiar with it, is an open source Twilio video Agara alternative. And it's built with live video and audio applications that features a modern end-to-end encrypted WebRTC stack. And they looked over and they went, perfect, we should just use that. So they did. And so what you see, call.element.io, is the implementation of LiveKit. Open source, end-to-end encrypted, works uh, works flawlessly, and they they did some things that I thought were really brilliant that I'm not seeing other conferencing software do, and I'm like, that makes so much sense. So, for example, it only asks for the resolution needed for that instance. So, for example, if you have one person in a conference and you're just looking at their video, well, it's going to ask for the full resolution. But when two people join and it shrinks down to this tiny little 600 by 600, you know, square thing, it's only going to ask for that. When you leave a tab, it says, huh. They're not viewing those video feeds. I'm not going to subscribe to them. As soon as you click on the tab, video feed starts back up. And so it preserves your bandwidth while allowing you to stay connected and prioritizing the things that you care about. When I'm looking at it, I want to see just this video. I don't care about these other ones. When everybody's on the screen, I want a low resolution, but I want to see everybody fluidly. And so it makes those decisions on its own in the background. does a fantastic job. And the last thing was native open ID connect MSC 3861. And so the idea here is it manages login and log out via the server. And so they basically got to a point and I actually, I wanted to play a, a couple of clips. Here was what, how Matthew explained how they arrived at open ID connect. And I, and I want you to pay attention to how an open source project correctly responds to criticism. When somebody gets up and says, this is hot garbage, it's not working the way that it should, we shouldn't be doing this, we should be doing this differently. How does that project respond? Have a listen. There are so many benefits here, it is untrue. And no, to be honest, when this was first proposed by Compton, um, who has been the champion of OpenID Connect and now supported by Hugh, um, I was pretty skeptical. Because one of the things we wanted to do with Matrix is to make it so easy to use the API and you know, what's the easier way to log in than go and hand a username and a password to slash login and you've got an access token and you're in and you never need to worry about anything else. In retrospect, this was a terrible mistake because it means, for instance, that Synapse still doesn't have two-factor auth doesn't have MFA, doesn't have pass keys, doesn't have any of these nice authentication, um, hygiene, quality of life things, which the rest of the world enjoys, because we basically accidentally, organically drifted into building our own authentication API. And I think Compton made an excellent, uh, you know, the point where it really clicked for me was that we had um, offsite element, and he stood on stage in front of everybody and said, I got a hot take. Matrix is a communication API. It is not an authentication API. We should not try to build an authentication API and then listed, frankly, the vulnerabilities that we'd had over the years due to having tried to build our own authentication API. So really, we want to burn it with fire, kill it in every way imaginable, and replace it with proper OpenID Connect. So this will give us the ability to shack up to an existing identity provider with all of the latest bells and whistles for smart cards and biometric scans and DNA samples and whatever else. So the thing I like about that is he takes criticism, says, okay, we can do that better. And when somebody points out that, hey, this isn't particularly open or interoperable, it'd be much better if it was done this way. They say, okay, let's do that. The other thing that stood out to me 
you can tell that this man eats his own dog food and he's using these things day out. And so the things that you get burned by or look and go, that's really frustrating. They're getting burned by and think it's really frustrating. And in, there's this kind of worst case scenario where it might take a couple of seconds rather than a couple of hundred milliseconds to sink. But so far, I don't think anybody's noticed it apart from me, um, who is particularly obsessed with fast and sync times, having been completely traumatized by the agony of using classic element on mobile on my account. So if you imagine every room you've ever been in, the guy who started the project, imagine what his account looks like. And the most exciting thing that came out of this conference was the discussion around interoperability. So for those of you who haven't been paying attention, the EU is on track to impose mandatory interoperability for one-to-one chats by March of 2024. Meaning if you are Facebook, if you are Apple, if you are Google, you have to interop with all of these other chat platforms, at least on one-to-one chats. And they've been advocating, Element that is, or Matrix that is, has been advocating for legislation and helping governments and large organizations understand the impact and challenges to having secure interoperable communications. And so they worked with Google to bridge Android messages to Matrix and demonstrate DMA and interop complete with end to end encryption, both with one to one chats, group chats and attachments, which I didn't necessarily think that, that that would be something they would be able to get to. But they got there and then they went down an interesting track. These large companies came back and said, you know, we don't want all of these fancy matrix features. We really just want the minimal viable matrix necessary to be able to be compliant with in, in the EU. What would that look like if you made a minimal matrix? The whole idea of tech interoperability between the big gatekeepers, the Googles and the Apples and the Facebooks, etc., um, honestly happened with quite a lot of um, encouragement from myself and Amandine wearing our matrix hoodies, um, going and talking to the EU and saying, you know, if you're doing antitrust regulation here, we have a precedent that shows that it is possible to do interoperable and secure communication, and it's called Matrix, and let's give, us, give you a demo, and we'll give you a demo using bridges, and you can see how much it sucks and how much it wouldn't suck if the things we're bridging together natively spoke something like Matrix. And it was honestly a bit of a stretch to, that the EU would have actually legally mandated interoperability, but they did. So... Since then, it's been a bit of a roller coaster um, to try to actually turn this into real life. Um, we mentioned at IETF in San Fran about two months ago now, and uh, we worked with Google to actually implement a native matrix bridge in messages by Google or Android messages um, to demonstrate how interop could work. I hasten to add, this is very much an experiment. This is not a commitment from anybody to actually have Google talking matrix, blah, blah, blah. But it was really interesting to see a big company like them say, okay, well, you've got to be DMA compliant. How should we do this? Hmm, this matrix thing looks interesting. How would this actually work? Can we get it talking end-to-end encryption? And it does. Uh, I honestly feel quite happy that the reason that we selected Signal and the double ratchet for Matrix's encryption back in 2015 was because Signal was already speaking it, but at the same time, um, everybody else was selecting it too, whether that was WhatsApp or Skype or... um, um, I think Google were, were talking about using it in their products at that point as well, like a low from memory had double ratchet end-to-end encryption. And as it happens, um, the dialect of the double ratchet that they use is compatible with OM um, pretty much. Um, so it was possible to get it all working, including attachments, which is pretty cool. Now, 
off the back of that, we produced a dialectic matrix called linearized matrix, which is a simplified subset of the protocol, specifically for interoperability between really big um, outfits. And one of the things which became very apparent is that even though we in the matrix ecosystem very, very much value replicated rooms spread across servers, if you are a company who has been regulated by the EU into interoperability, you don't necessarily want fancy Git-style replicated rooms. You just want to not go to jail, not get fined, and actually interoperate. So we took the cue to say, hey, what would Matrix look like if you have a simpler version which has the same events, has the same signing, but rather than being a full mesh of replication, you have a hub and a spoke, but critically that hub and spoke is compatible with normal Matrix too. So you get best of both worlds. You end up replicating between folks like us, but then if you're a big outfit who needs to implement a big table implementation of it or whatever it is, then um, you don't have to know what state resolution is, basically. So that's what linearized matrix is and where it's come from. So things that I really appreciated about Matrix in general and what got me excited about the 2.0 stuff, built on open source, built with FOSS principles, you can see it in action. Everything from the way they handle feedback from their user base to the way they implement features to the way they advocate for governments and large organizations to make open source more prevalent. And if there was one thing I could do with you, it would be to establish a communication path. I appreciate the fact that you listen to the show. You can write in live at asknoahshow.com or join the Geek Lab at geeklab.linuxdelta.com. We're back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. Have a good week. Have a good week.